0: Section Twelve of Beacon Lights of History, Volume Seven: Great Women by John Lord. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by K Hand. Sarah, Duchess of Marlborough, Part Three. It was the misfortune of the Duchess of Marlborough to have this witty and malignant satirist for an enemy. He exposed her peculiarities and laid bare her character with fearless effrontery. It was thus that he attacked the most powerful woman in England a lady of my acquaintance appropriated twenty-six pounds a year out of her allowance for certain uses which the lady received or was to pay to the lady or her order when called for but after eight years it appeared upon the strictest calculation that the woman had paid but four pounds and sunk twenty-two pounds for her own pocket it is but supposing twenty-six pounds instead of twenty-six thousand pounds and by that you may judge what the pretensions of modern merit are when it happens to be its own paymaster who could stand before such insinuations the duchess afterwards attempted to defend herself against the charge of peculation as the keeper of the privy purse but no one believed her she was notoriously avaricious and unscrupulous swift spared no personage in the party of the whigs when by so doing he could please the leaders of the tories and he wrote in an age when libels were scandalous and savage libels which would now subject their authors to punishment the acrimony of party strife at that time has never since been equaled even poets attacked each other with savage recklessness there was no criticism after the style of saint Beuve. writers sought either to annihilate or to extravagantly praise The jealousy which poets displayed in reference to each other's productions was as unreasonable and bitter as the envy and strife between country doctors or musicians at the opera. There was one great writer in the age of Queen Anne who was an exception to this nearly universal envy and bitterness, and this was Addison, who was as serene and calm as other critics were furious and unjust. Even Swift spared this amiable and accomplished writer, although he belonged to the Whig party. Joseph Addison, born in 1672, was the most fortunate man of letters in his age, perhaps in any succeeding age in English history. He was early distinguished as a writer of Latin poems, and in 1699, at the age of twenty-seven, the young scholar was sent by Montague, at the recommendation of Summers, to the continent, on a pension of three hundred pounds a year, to study languages with a view to the diplomatic service. On the accession of Anne, Addison was obliged to return to literature for his support solicited by godolphin under the advice of halifax to write a poem on the victories of marlborough he wrote one so popular that he rapidly rose in favour with the whig ministry in 1708 he was made the secretary for ireland under lord wharton and entered parliament he afterwards was made secretary of state married a peeress and spent his last days at holland house but addison was no politician nor did he distinguish himself in parliament or as a political writer he could not make a speech not having been trained to debate he was too timid and his taste was too severe for the arena of politicians he is immortal for his essays in which his humor is transcendent and his style easy and graceful as a writer he is a great artist no one has ever been able to equal him in the charming simplicity of his style macaulay a great artist himself in the use of language places addison on the summit of literary excellence and fame as an essayist one is at loss to comprehend why so quiet and unobtrusive a scholar should have been selected for important political positions but can easily understand why he was the admiration of the highest social circles for his wit and the elegance of his conversation he was the personification of urbanity and every gentlemanly quality as well as one of the best scholars of his age but it was only in an aristocratic age when a few great nobles controlled public affairs that such a man could have been so recognized rewarded and honored he died beloved and universally lamented and his writings are still classics and likely to remain so he was not an oracle in general society like mackintosh and macaulay but among congenial and trusted friends he gave full play to his humour and was as charming as washington irving is said to have been in his chosen circle of admirers although he was a whig we do not read of any particular intimacy with such men as marlborough and godolphin Marlborough, though an accomplished and amiable man, was not fond of the society of wits, as were Halifax, Montague, Harley, and St. John. As for the Duchess, she was too proud and grand for such a retired scholar as Addison to feel at ease in her worldly coteries. She cared no more for poetry or severe intellectual culture than politicians generally do. She shone only in a galaxy of ladies of rank and fashion i do not read that she ever took a literary man into her service and she had no more tastes for letters than the sovereign she served she was doubtless intellectual shrewd and discriminating but her intellect was directed to current political movements and she was coarse in her language she would swear like queen elizabeth when excited to anger and her wrath was terrible on the dismissal of the great duke from all his offices and the disgrace of his wife at court they led a comparatively quiet life abroad the duchess had parted with her offices with great reluctance even when the queen sent for the golden keys which were the badge of her office she refused to surrender them no one could do anything with the infuriated termagant; all were afraid of her she threatened to print the private correspondence of the queen as mrs morley the ministers dared not go into her presence so fierce was her character when offended to take from her the badge of office was like trying to separate a fierce lioness from her whelps the only person who could manage her was her husband and when at last he compelled her to give up the keys she threw them in a storm of passion at his head and raved like a maniac it is amazing how the queen could have borne so long with the duchess's ungovernable temper and still more so how her husband could but he was always mild and meek in the retirement of his home a truly domestic man to whom pomp was a weariness moreover he was a singularly fortunate man his ambition and pride and avarice were gratified beyond precedent in english history he had become the foremost man in his country and perhaps of his age and his wife was still looked to as a great personage not only because of her position and rank but for her abilities which were doubtless great she was still a power in the land and was surrounded by children and grandchildren who occupied some of the highest social positions in england but she was not happy what can satisfy a restless and ambitious woman whose happiness is in external pleasures there is a limit to the favours which fortune showers and when the limits of success are reached there must be disappointment the duchess was discontented and became morose quarrelsome and hard to please her children did not love her and some were in bitter opposition to her she was perpetually embroiled in family quarrels nothing could soften the asperity of her temper or restrain her unreasonable exactions at last england became hateful to her and she and her husband quitted it and resided abroad for several years in the retirement of voluntary exile she answered the numerous accusations against her for she was maligned on every side and generally disliked since her arrogance had become insupportable even to her daughters meanwhile the last days of queen anne's weary existence were drawing to a close she was assailed with innumerable annoyances her body was racked with the gout and her feeble mind was distracted by the contradictory counsels of her advisers any allusion to her successor was a knell of agony to her disturbed soul she became suspicious and was even alienated from harley whom she dismissed from office only a few days before her death which took place august first seventeen fourteen she died without signing her will by which omission mrs masham was deprived of her legacy she died childless and the elector george of hanover ascended her throne on the death of the queen marlborough returned to england and it was one of the first acts of the new king to restore to him the post of captain-general of the land forces while his son-in-law sunderland was made lord lieutenant of ireland a whig cabinet was formed but the duke never regained his old political influence and he gradually retired to private life residing with the duchess almost wholly at holywell his peaceful retirement for which he had longed came at last He employed his time in surveying the progress of the building of Blenheim, in which palace he was never destined to live, and in simple pleasures, for which he never lost a taste. His wife occupied herself in matrimonial projects for her grandchildren, seeking alliances of ambition and interest. In 1716 the Duke of Marlborough was attacked with a paralytic fit, from the effects of which he only partially recovered. To restore his health he went to Bath, then the fashionable and favorite watering-place, whose waters were deemed beneficial to invalids and here it was one of the scandals of the day that the rich nobleman would hobble from the public room to his lodgings in a cold dark night to save sixpence in coach hire his enjoyments were now few and transient his nervous system was completely shattered after so many labors and exposures in his numerous campaigns he lingered till seventeen twenty two when he died leaving a fortune of a million and a half pounds sterling besides his vast estates no subject at that time had so large an income he left a military fame never surpassed in england except by wellington and a name unstained by cruelty so distinguished a man of course received at his death unparalleled funeral honours he was followed to his temporary resting-place in the vaults of westminster by the most imposing procession that england had ever seen the duchess of marlborough was now the richest woman in england whatever influence proceeds from rank and riches she still possessed though the titles and honors of the dukedom descended by act of parliament in 1706 to the countess of godolphin with whom she was at war the duchess was now sixty-two with unbroken health and inextinguishable ambition she resided chiefly at windsor lodge for she held for life the office of ranger of the forest it was then that she was so severely castigated by pope in his satirical lines on atossa that she is said to have sent one thousand pounds to the poet to suppress the libel her avarice and wrath giving way to her policy and pride for twenty years after the death of her husband she continued an intriguing politician but on ill terms with sir robert walpole the prime minister whom she cordially hated more because of money transactions than political disagreements She was a very disagreeable old woman yet not without influence if she was without friends she had at least the merit of frankness for she concealed none of her opinions of the king nor of his ministers nor of distinguished nobles she was querulous and full of complaints and exactions one of her bitterest complaints was that she was compelled to pay taxes on her house in windsor park she would even utter her complaints before servants litigation was not disagreeable to her if she had reason on her side whether she had law or not It was not the good fortune of this strong-minded but unhappy woman to assemble around her, in her declining years, children and grandchildren who were attached to her. She had alienated even them. She had no intimate friends. A woman not beloved by her own children can have but little claim to the affections of others. As we have already said, the Duchess was at open variance with her oldest daughter Henrietta, the Countess of Godolphin, to whom she was never reconciled her quarrels with her granddaughter lady anne edgerton afterwards duchess of bedford were violent and incessant she lived in perpetual altercation with her youngest daughter the duchess of montague she never was beloved by any of her children at any time since they were in childhood and youth entrusted to the care of servants and teachers while the mother was absorbed in political cabals at court she consulted their interest merely in making for them grand alliances to gratify her family pride her whole life was absorbed in pride and ambition nor did the mortification of a dishonored old age improve her temper she sought neither the consolation of religion nor the intellectual stimulus of history and philosophy to the last she was as worldly as she was morose to the last she was a dissatisfied politician she reviled the whig administration of walpole as fiercely as she did the tory administration of oxford she haughtily refused the order of the bath for her grandson the duke of marlborough which walpole offered contented with nothing less than the garter madam replied walpole they who take the bath will sooner have the garter in her old age her ruling passions was hatred of walpole i think she wrote tis thought wrong to wish anybody dead but i hope tis none to wish he may be hanged her wishes were partly gratified for she lived long enough to see this great statesman so long supreme driven to the very threshold of the tower for his son horace she had equal dislike and he returned her hatred with malignant satire "'Old Marlborough is dying,' said the wit, "'but who can tell? Last year she had lain a great while ill without speaking, and her physician told her that she must be blistered or she would die. She cried out, "'I won't be blistered, and I won't die.'" She did indeed last some time longer, but with increasing infirmities her amusements and pleasures became yearly more circumscribed. In former years she had sometimes occupied her mind with the purchase of land, for she was shrewd and rarely made a bad bargain even at the age of eighty she went to the city to bid in person for the estate of lord yarmouth but as her darkened day approached its melancholy close, she amused herself by dictating in bed her vindication after spending thus six hours daily with her secretary she had recourse to her chamber organ the eight tunes of which she thought much better to hear than going to the italian opera even society in which she once shone for her intellect was bright and her person beautiful at last wearied her and gave her no pleasure like many lonely discontented women she became attached to animals she petted three dogs in which she saw virtues that neither men nor women possessed in her disquiet she often changed her residence she went from marlborough house to windsor lodge and from windsor lodge to wimbledon only to discover that each place was damp and unhealthy wrapped up in flannels and wheeled up and down her room in a chair she discovered that wealth can only mitigate the evils of humanity and realized how wretched is any person with a soul filled with discontent and bitterness when animal spirits are destroyed by the infirmities of old age all the views of this spoiled favorite of fortune were bounded by the scenes immediately before her while she was not skeptical she was far from being religious and hence she was deprived of the highest consolations given to people in disappointment and sorrow and neglect The older she grew, the more tenaciously did she cling to temporal possessions, and the more keenly did she feel occasional losses. Her intellect remained unclouded, but her feelings became callous. While she had no reverence for the dead, she felt increasing contempt for the living, forgetting that no one, however exalted, can live at peace in an atmosphere of disdain. At last she died in 1744, unlamented and unloved in the eighty-fourth year of her age and was interred by the side of her husband in the tomb in the chapel of blenheim she left thirty thousand pounds a year to her grandson lord john spencer provided he would never accept any civil or military office from the government she left also twenty thousand pounds to lord chesterfield together with her most valuable diamond but only small sums to most of her relatives or to charities the residue of her property she left to that other grandson who inherited the title and estates of her husband sixty thousand pounds a year her estimated income besides a costly collection of jewels one of the most valuable in europe were a great property when few noblemen at that time had over thirty thousand pounds a year the life of sarah duchess of marlborough is a sad one to contemplate with all her riches and honors let those who envy wealth or rank learn from her history how little worldly prosperity can secure happiness or esteem without the solid virtues of the heart the richest and most prosperous woman of her times was the object of blended derision contempt and hatred throughout the land which she might have adorned why then it may be asked should i single out such a woman for a lecture a woman who added neither to human happiness national prosperity nor the civilization of her age why have i chosen her as one of the beacon lights of history because i know of no woman who has filled so exalted a position in society and is so prominent a figure in history whose career is a more impressive warning of the dangers to be shunned by those who embark on the perilous and troubled seas of mere worldly ambition god gave her that to which she aspired and which so many envy but he sent leanness into her soul authorities private correspondence of the duchess of marlborough mrs thompson's life of the duchess of marlborough conduct by the duchess of marlborough life of dr tillotson by dr birch cox's life of the duke of marlborough evelyn's diary lord mahon's history of england macaulay's history of england louis jenkins memoirs of the duke of gloucester burnett's history of his own times lamberty's memoirs swift's journal to stella lydiard's life of the duke of marlborough boyer's annals of queen anne swift's memoir of the queen's ministry cunningham's history of great britain walpole's correspondence edited by cox sir walter scott's life of swift agnes strickland's queens of england marlborough and the times of queen anne westminster review fifty six twenty six dublin university review seventy four four hundred sixty nine temple bar magazine fifty two three hundred thirty three burton's reign of queen anne stanhope's queen anne end of section twelve